Hello, my friends. Today, we're talking to Robert, senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. And we discuss the incredible growth of technology in the Middle East, the exciting futuristic city in development known as The Line, and how this area of the world is using technology to reduce waste and promote sustainable growth. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Tell me about your journey. Where did you start? How did you get here? Well, maybe I'll uh, move backwards because in looking backwards, it actually seems to make more sense than moving forward. Well, right now, my full-time job is as a resident scholar at, a, at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. And I manage the political economy research uh, at the Institute, which essentially means anything to do with numbers uh, comes to my desk. The bread and butter issues are really um, trade, investment, labor markets, energy. Those tend to be uh, what a lot of our audience is, is interested in and which uh, fall into the, the political economy domain. But I've also created a number of specialties at the Institute that I pursue as well, both at the Institute and in a number of external affiliations. One is a uh, research initiative called Next Gen Gulf, which looks at how technology trends are shaping the region's economy and governments. And the second is a China Gulf initiative, which, as you might suspect from the name, looks at China's involvement uh, in the region. Uh, so that's my full-time gig at the Institute. At the Institute pays me every two weeks to think, write, and speak about, uh, about the Gulf region, that segment of the Middle East. But uh, I also teach at Georgetown University and George Washington University as a adjunct professor or prof- uh, professorial lecturer, which is the same, Sounds cool. same title, essentially, for a uh, non-full-time tenure-track professor. And I advise and consult uh, NGOs, um, political risk outfits like the Eurasia Group, uh, and government agencies about the Middle East. So I uh, wear many different hats, as many colleagues in the think tank world tend to, uh, tend to do, um, but spend a lot of my time thinking about the Gulf region where um, Saudi Arabia sits in the world and uh, technology trends in the region and how uh, it impacts, in particular, the, ec- the economies of the region, but also the governments, because this is a region that, um, for better or for worse, is very difficult to separate the economics from the politics and the politics from the economics. Are you from Saudi Arabia? I am not. I grew up just north of Boston in Massachusetts. So close. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know, just, just, a little, just a little ways away from Saudi Arabia. But I, I did tell you that I would work backwards and I forgot to do so. So th- that's all what I'm doing now. I, I guess um, I got there via the UK and the Middle East. So working backwards, I, um, I got my PhD at the University of Oxford. I uh, also did my master's there and, and enjoyed it so much I decided to, to, to stay on. While I was a master's student, I started working for a um, consulting firm that was based in Oxford and, uh, and the Middle East. And they started sending me out on consulting projects out uh, to the Gulf, to Saudi Arabia, to the United Arab Emirates and to Qatar. And I started to think, you know, there's really something to this region. Um, I, for much of my academic career, had been focused on North Africa because 
leading up to 2011 and the Arab Spring, North Africa was really where everything was happening. This is where the kind of big protests were happening, democratization, revolutions. There was a lot of interest in places like uh, Egypt, where I lived for about three years, and Tunisia, where I also spent some time. But around 2014 and 2015, the oil prices uh, around the globe just crashed. And all of a sudden, we started to see new players emerging onto the political scene in the Middle East. Among them was the crown prince of, now crown prince of Saudi Arabia's father, King Salman, in 2015. He, w- he became king uh, of Saudi Arabia. And really, that started to initiate some major changes across the region. And at least in my academic and professional world, shifted my attention from North Africa to the Gulf region. And from then on, I really, I really started to dig into this region, both as, a, as an academic uh, researcher and then as a professional. And so far, it's been, a, it's been a very, very interesting and fun ride. So can you define NGO? What's that? Non-governmental organization. Okay. So that's the organization that you're a part of. Yes. I mean, what you'll find here in in, in Washington, D.C. are a number of NGOs. They can work on uh, anything from migrant rights to uh, freedom and transparency to democratization across the globe. So we have a pretty robust network of NGOs here in D.C., and a number of them do work on the Middle East and pull in advisors like myself to work on particular projects. So what's going on in technology in the Gulf? Gosh, a lot's going on. Um, just in Saudi Arabia, I, I mean, uh, there are three or four big developments that seem to have happened just within the past week in Saudi Arabia, which gives you some indication of the pace of technological in, of interest in the tech sector, interest in the digital economy, and really the pace of uh, technological change going on in the kingdom and in the you know in the broader Middle East. First and foremost, there was a major conference on AI. I think it was called it's called the Global AI Summit that took place in just the middle of September. So you had um, just uh, I think two hundred speakers from across the globe descending on. Riyadh in, in the capital of Saudi Arabia to attend this major summit. And this, in many respects, is part and parcel of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's strategy to position Saudi Arabia as this emerging technology hub, not just within the Middle East, but really, um, you know, in the world as a global hub for, for technology. So there's this major summit, number one. Uh, number two, the crown prince just, I believe, sometime around, maybe a couple days before, maybe a couple days after, announced a national gaming and esports strategy for the kingdom. So this is an area that has also generated a tremendous amount of interest uh, across the Middle East, but in particular in Saudi Arabia. One reason for that is that the country's population is very young. I was, before our conversation today, tried to look up the latest demographics and figures. But we're talking about a country where approximately 60 to 65 percent of the entire population uh, is under the age of uh, 35. And those are those figures are from a year or so, uh, a year or two ago. So, you know, it's safe to say more than 60 percent 
somewhere probably between 16 and 70 percent. That's a significant youth bulge that forms a important constituency for the political leadership of Saudi Arabia. Now, they don't have a formal political system that has a formal mechanism for the leadership to, to have to essentially respond to a political constituency of voters like we have here in the U.S. But there are informal ways that um, the local population of young Saudis can express their discontent with the way things are going in the country. So there are, you know, informal uh, modes of political participation, so to speak, and certainly responsibilities that the leadership has to keep this, you know, large segment of the population content and happy with the direction of economic development, direct, uh, the direction of social social change and reforms going on in the kingdom. And, uh, you know, to my mind, a focus on gaming and esports is a way to tap into this young constituency. And the third uh, development that happened really just within the past week actually is more in the nitty gritty of um, economic planning. The Ministry of Commerce launched a new program or a set of announcements that basically makes it easier for uh, e-stores to operate in the kingdom, which, you know, is not necessarily the sexiest announcement, uh, but is shows that the bureaucracy within Saudi Arabia is committed to pursuing all different avenues of the digital economy and enabling various um, various companies, especially local companies, to really take advantage of, uh, of the growth of the digital economy going on in the kingdom. So, um, you know, those are just three announcements that happened recently. We, I suspect, are going to talk more about uh, Neom and the tech focus, um, the tech focused components of Neom. And that's something that, um, that there's, as you mentioned before, been substantial interest in both uh, within the kingdom and, and outside of the kingdom. So is that a project that Saudi is leading? Yeah, so Neom is a special economic zone, I would say is the best way to characterize this project. And uh, just as a, a quick disclaimer, you'll have to cut me off whenever uh, you get bored of hearing me talk about special economic zones because I published a book uh, last year on... Uh, special economic zones and free zones in the Gulf. So I've been looking at this topic for many years, uh, longer than any uh, rational, normal uh, human being should look at a topic uh, like this and, and can talk uh, you know, forever about it. But essentially, this project was announced by the Crown Prince in 2017. It was part of a new vision that the Crown Prince put forth for his country that essentially lays out a very ambitious economic and social transformation for the country, which has a lot of potential. It has a lot of natural resources, in particular hydrocarbon um, commodities. But um, it also has been traditionally, it's a very traditional and conservative country. And there were a lot of factors, you know, in many respects, holding the kingdom back from exploiting the true, you know, commercial potential that many Saudi officials believe that the country has. So Mohammed bin Salman embarks on this uh, very ambitious economic and social transformation project, which he calls Vision 2030. Uh, anyone who is closely following the, the kingdom will be very familiar with Saudi Vision 2030. And one of the flagship projects of this Vision 2030 
has become NEOM, a special economic zone that in 2017 was marketed as a next generation special economic zone that would actually not only incorporate territory from the northwestern part of Saudi Arabia, but it would also absorb territory from Egypt and Jordan, two neighboring Middle Eastern countries. Now, this got a lot of um, people in my world and think tank world and academia uh, and also uh, those of us who look at special economic zones rather interested because we've seen a lot of examples um, in Latin American countries, in Asia and in Europe of special economic zones being created for various developmental objectives. Usually they occur within a host country or are marketed as some type of offshore zone, but it's quite rare that they pull in territory from other countries. Um, So this was quite a new concept in many respects. If we fast forward a couple of years, the territorial incorporation of, uh, you know, from Jordan and Egypt has really fallen by the wayside. And this has now become a fully Saudi project. And if the Jordanian and Egyptian components have kind of faded away, what they've been replaced with have been extremely ambitious, next generation, high tech, environmentally friendly components of a large mega project that in many respects is an extremely experimental approach to uh, how humans are going to live in the future. There are three key components to NEOM. The first is the line, which we can talk about in more detail according to your interest. But the line is essentially, as, uh, as you can imagine, a linear form of urban development that is supposed to stretch from the Red Sea into the desert, will have two parallel uh, mirrored skyscrapers, essentially, stretching from the sea into the desert. And then the entire urban structure would be or is supposedly going to be constructed within the space between those two mirrored skyscrapers. Uh, I'm a big reader of The Economist, and uh, anyone who reads The Economist will will recognize the Neom advertisements that are regularly on the back of The Economist or within The Economist uh, uh, magazine. And the latest uh, advertisements has said that, uh, that this is going to have the cleanest air found anywhere in the world. So, and clearly marketing toward a clientele, I mean, maybe from some parts of Asia and from China that are dealing with significant, you know, popu- uh, you know uh, population demographics and, um, and, and pollution who are looking for clean air. I mean, that's just one segment, I think, of the clientele they're attracting to NEO. But that's one, uh, that's just one component of the line. The second component is Trojena, which is marketed as a as redefining a tor- redefining the tourism experience, and from some snazzy videos that we can um, we can watch online, apparently there will be skiing for at least part of the year at Trojena. There are mountains, and occasionally they do get snow in Saudi Arabia, but uh, I do feel it's quite a, a long shot to market and count on this part of Saudi Arabia being a sustainable. Um, you know, ski resort. So that's 
very, very <laughs> experimental. And I would say, you, you uh, mean, hold on a second. You mean economically a ski resort in the desert is probably not going to work out. <laughs> not only is it not necessarily going to work out, but this is one area wherein we can see some very real contradictions emerging in in the different development trajectories and aspirations associated with this project. On the one hand, Saudi planners are trying to be very experimental and ambitious and certainly creating a ski resort in Saudi Arabia falls into that category. I mean, aren't they aren't they even getting like far ahead of themselves? I mean, this was in 2017. Does any part of this exist today? It looks amazing, by the way. It looks amazing. None of what we see in these promotional videos, as far as I know, have materialized. Have they broken ground on it at all? Yes, there have been, as far as we can tell, and I've, because of COVID, it's been, and and the pandemic has made it more challenging to travel out to the region. I've unfortunately had to rely on, um, for at least for Saudi Arabia, uh, reports um, about progress from from others and journalists based out of the region who have visited. Very little of the extremely experimental elements of this project have actually materialized. They are very much in the concept stage and trying to move into implementation. There are a number of, there are hotels, um, an airport, you have a number of service-oriented development structures in place, a palace, for the ruling family, and they spend some of their um, some of their time uh, in this region of Saudi Arabia. So there's certainly indications that um, this is an area that is up and coming, so to speak. But no, um, what we see online is still very much aspirational, and you know I, I think there are very serious. You know there there are. There's good reason to be critical about, um, you know, to ask critical questions about what parts of this project are actually going to see the light of day and what might just remain kind of aspirational um, components or, you know, or, or initiatives to generate media buzz and, um, and, you know, and kind of promotional activities. But just to get back and, and conclude this idea of, of some contradictions a big part of this project is that everything is going to be environmentally friendly as well. So when you start thinking about trying to create a ski resort in the desert with, you know, trying to reconcile that with being one of the most economically friendly and sustainable, you know, mega projects that the world has ever seen, it's it's not hard to to imagine that there are some very real contradictions there that Saudi planners if they're not thinking about right now, certainly are going to have to grapple with in, um, you know, in the near future. This feels like to me, <laughs> okay, so in software development, there's a thing called feature creep, right? Where it's like, okay, you have this idea and then you have another idea and another idea and you didn't actually build your first original idea, right? Sort of the features sort of creep up and stack up on you and then you never really get a whole lot done. And the way that they solve for that is an MVP, right? Like minimally viable product. So just like building like one notch of that city and then just with its most basic iteration and then improving it from there. Why is nobody trying to do that? Well, Joel, I mean, that's, it's a great point. And the reality is, is that is most likely how this project is going to unfold. The line component that we discussed earlier is going to take 
place or apparently, as, uh, as the reporting tells us, is going to be built in segments. So there'll be kind of chunk after chunk after chunk uh, developed that eventually, if all goes well, it will continue to extend the full length of the, of the planned project. Many observers expect uh, only a small portion of that line project to actually materialize and to be delivered. So you'll have a scaled down version of this linear development. Same with the tourism, um, the, you know, the, the redefining tourism, the Trojana segment. Again, uh, you know, I think that it's there are certainly some very exciting. There's very exciting tourism offerings in Saudi Arabia. You have the desert, you have mountains, you have beautiful coastline. You know, all of those elements present opportunities to exploit, so to speak, for tourism offerings. I'm not so sure that the ski resort will be, you know, the the, the strongest foot that they can put forward. The final element uh, here that that we'll also have to wait and see if it materializes is called Oxagon, which is a floating industrial city. And again, this looks great on paper. It's uh, a very intriguing design. It's an intriguing concept. But not only do the Saudis have to figure out how to make this work from an, you know, the standpoint of minimizing pollution, making sure that it's uh, eco-friendly and sustainable, uh, making sure that it's functional for business. But here, they're going to actually have to attract investors and business people to come and set up on this floating city. And here, this is, in many respects, where the Saudis will will face uh, significant difficulties. Because even if they the government has the resources to fund this project and to you know to break ground on a floating industrial city. The next big obstacle is actually bringing people in and having them fill up the warehouses and fill up and, you know, and serve as tenants, commercial tenants in this city. So there are many challenges. And you're right to say that thus far, those of us who have been watching this very carefully continue to see and to hear new announcements and new plans. And instead of reported progress on results, there just seem to be more and more plans pushing this project further and further into the future. So eventually, uh, I suspect that foreign investors and the local constituency that I was talking about earlier, Saudi citizens who have a stake in, at the end of the day, the way that the government is spending the financial resources that the country has at its disposal, these local and and foreign actors, they're going to want to see some results. And we're not quite there yet. This is a project that is going to take some time. And there is a little bit of leeway and and room for for the Saudi leadership to still demonstrate results. But uh, pretty soon, they're going to have to show something for all their efforts. It's called, uh, in software, it's called vaporware. So companies will be really, really good at like marketing it, showing it, explaining it, taking pre-orders for it, raising money for it, and then the software never actually happens. And and and, and here's the other angle. I've been saying for some time that uh, the technological component of this project that has emerged really only within the last year or two, it is in many respects a hedge against this project not realizing its full potential. And what I mean by this is early on, the project was all about bringing in Egypt, bringing in Jordan, Jordan, creating this you know major special economic zone spanning different countries within the region. 
That was scaled down. Now it's just about Saudi Arabia. And then it becomes, well, we're going to have the most high-tech mega project in the region. And then it's become even narrower to say, we're going to create a way to for those residents and investors who, who share our vision and are willing to join our journey. We're going to create this next generation way of living for, for those individuals, for those investors, for those uh, companies that come and, 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 and decide to be part of NEOM. And for me, this is a very, uh, I guess this makes sense as a strategy uh, to be able to say, you know, looking back and after a year or two from now, if the Saudi planners do not get the foreign investments that they expected and that they anticipated, if they do not get the number of firms to come in to relocate and they don't have the number of residents. I mean, we heard figures of millions of people that they hope over the coming years to relocate to Neom and be part of this in their words, this experiment, they can at least say, well, for those who have come, for those who have relocated, they are living this next generation form of living. They have the best apps at their disposal. They have the most technologically advanced services. They are living, so to speak, in the future. And in some respects, it is uh, it is a hedge against not fully meeting expectations that can be um, that can be measured in terms of how many people have located, how much foreign direct investment uh, you have. It's it's a very nifty uh, it's a very nifty safeguard, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, look, I want this to exist. I think it looks great. Let's let's get it done. <laughs> like just build build that first small version. I mean, even if it's like closer, even if you did a variation of it inside of Saudi or like really close to where they have, you know, other resources in, in Saudi Arabia, that would be really cool too. But a couple points. The first one is I'm really excited about floating cities. I've gotten to do some interviews on floating cities and those projects are like getting funded and in construction. The way I've seen it is they're more pitching it, not as industrial. And from my conversations, I'm, I'm sure it's, it has different iterations in different parts of the world. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the one that I was speaking to, they were doing, I guess, some like research facilities and they were uh, specifically going after budget of places that were on the edges of water because of sea level rise. So they're trying to figure out how to connect these floating cities usability to the fact that sea levels are rising and things like that. But then they were the, these pods, for lack of a better term, uh, these floating cities, they would be sort of like self-containing right on on these platforms. And it looked like not even a block, like a city block. And it didn't have like everything on it. It had like a main building, water processing, the ability to stabilize itself and and all of that. I think that would be really cool. So basically what they're doing, I'm new to all of this, by the way, what they're doing, it seems, is they're trying to come up with some really cool, interesting stuff so that they're relevant on the the world stage and that they're advancing technology and that they're bringing people in to grow their country because that's what countries should be doing, right? They should be growing, right? Yeah, that's that's absolutely it. And and at times at times the economic development strategy appears at least to me to be something akin to throwing a big plate of spaghetti at the wall and seeing how it <laughs> sticks yeah. because we have just seen such an incredible number of various initiatives, announcements and you know it seems that the government has tasked all of the the various officials leading these different strategies and initiatives and projects to 
race at 100 miles per hour in every different direction. And, you know, on one level, you can say that's crazy. You, you can't go 100 miles you know, an hour in, in every direction and expect, um, you know, some clear progress. But the strategy seems to be very much let's try everything that we can and see and see what works. And along the way, uh, at the very least, we're going to generate a lot of interest and a lot of media buzz. And um, and we're going to try to channel that um, that interest in Saudi Arabia and show you know audiences from across the world that this is a country that, in many respects, especially from an economic and a social perspective, is changing and is changing very quickly. So there are very strong feelings about Mohammed bin Salman. He's a very controversial character, the the young crown prince of Saudi Arabia. But one thing that you know I, that very few people um, reasoned close observers and informed observers of, of, of the country and of the region can deny is that he is extremely committed to this vision uh, 2030 that he put forth. And he's committed to changing the country's economy and, and much of its social structure in a way that he thinks is more fit for the 21st century uh, and, and you know, for many decades to come. This is a young crown prince. He's in his 30s. He's uh, likely to become king very soon. And, you know, if his health, if he continues to be healthy, he could be king for, you know, for, for many decades and leading this country well into the future. So, and what was his name again? Mohammed bin Salman. He uh, is the son of King Salman, is still the, um, the head of, of Saudi Arabia, the king of Saudi Arabia. Mohammed bin Salman is the designated crown prince. And it's expected at, at some point in, um, you know, in the near future, he will become king. His father has been kind of playing less and less of a of, of a public role. There are some reports that he's not of uh, that he's you know, somewhat ill and, and not of the best health. So we'll see what happens with a potential political transition. The other thing worth worth mentioning is about Saudi Arabia. This is a country where there's a tremendous amount of economic momentum at the moment. It's going to be one of the fastest growing economies in the world this year, if not the fastest growing economy. And that mainly has to do uh, with the fact that a good chunk of its economy depends on exporting uh, oil and gas resources, in particular crude oil. And as we know, um, you know, oil prices have... Uh, My oil portfolio is doing pretty well. <laughs> that's right. They've been, prices have been rather high over the past year. And that benefits a country like Saudi Arabia, and in particular, the government, which derives anywhere ballpark uh, around 70, 75 percent of its uh, pub of public sector revenues from oil and gas uh, from the oil and gas sector. So if, you know, oil and gas prices are uh, are high, the Saudi government's uh, revenues tend to be doing pretty well. And they're going to generate hundreds of billions of dollars. When I say that, I mean Saudi Arabia's government is going to generate hundreds of billions of dollars this year just from um, from oil and gas exports. And that gives them a lot of money to play with, um, so to speak. I was looking, not preparing for this interview, but like about three days ago, I follow this guy named Ray Dalio. He's like yeah, a sure. very successful international investor person. Of course. And... But he had said something, he was talking about these market cycles, and it prompted an interest in me to go look up which countries have the highest like debt to GDP ratios. And Saudi Arabia was like at the top of the list of like having virtually it was very low. It was in the top ten of the lowest countries in the world because it stood out to me because I go, Oh, and my head said, Oh, it's 
probably a lot to do with oil. They have a great, important product. Yeah, for for many years, Saudi Arabia has been able to enjoy significant um, budget surpluses, and the government's been able to, you know, plow those financial resources from uh, budget surpluses uh, back into the economy, or into rainy day funds, or into development funds, and then to also use those financial resources to to fund budgets for for the next year. So. The country has not had to resort to, um, to you know, to issuing uh, sovereign debt in a way that we see with many other countries uh, across the globe, uh, U.S., Europe, uh, and 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 many other Middle Eastern countries, by the way, that that are not as you know that not have the same degree of um, of hydrocarbon resources that Saudi Arabia does. So yeah, I, I think you're right. It, the the figure is somewhere when I last looked, it was somewhere just above 30 percent of GDP. Because Saudi Arabia's GDP has skyrocketed, um, you know, over the past year or so because of high oil prices, that's even if the debt doesn't change, if they're not paying down debt with a higher GDP, you're going to see a, a lower ratio. But that's a very good and healthy place for a country like Saudi Arabia to be. They don't have a debt issue, so to speak. And most of the debt that a country like Saudi Arabia takes out, and many of its neighbors as well, Qatar, Abu Dhabi, it's actually just to generate uh, activity in its debt markets. They want to be players. They want to have access to cheap, um, you know, to, to cheap debt. Uh, it, it's good for the economy. It's good for banks. It's good for investors. It's good for a lot of reasons. So even in some cases when they wouldn't necessarily need to, um, you know, to issue sovereign debt, you will see countries like Saudi Arabia uh, doing that just to keep you know, activity humming and to, to keep momentum going in that space. But yes, it's one of the fastest growing economies in the world. It's low debt to GDP uh, ratio. And the government has a tremendous uh, revenue source at the moment. That's not going to last forever. We understand that. But oil and gas definitely has, um, there, there's more money to be made in oil and gas yeah. than, oh, for sure. than many people forecasted just a couple of years ago. And the Saudis seem willing to put their money where their mouth is when it comes to Neom and, uh, and, and the government supporting this initiative. Uh, they announced that they will create a $80 billion fund that will supposedly help to push forward various aspects of Neom. So be it, there are still details that remain to be seen. But uh, as, as far as we know at the moment, this is going to be called a Neom fund and it will have, I guess, the, the aspirational target is we'll have about $80 billion. The takeaway there is there's a lot of government money and capital behind this project. Is the U.S. and the, are we like on good terms with uh, Saudi? Well, that's a complicated <laughs> oh, no. question because there's so many different levels to relations between two countries. By the way, just so you know, like I think it's worth saying for me personally, I am not politically smart. Like I don't spend a lot of time there. My focus is on technology and sometimes politics come into technology specifically with like policy of like AI and things like that. But for the most part, I'm a, I'm a pretty center person. I'm curious to know who in Saudi Arabia is the most important person in technology, like the CTO of Saudi Arabia, and do they speak English? I can almost assure you that the officials charged with overseeing the technology portfolios definitely uh, speak English. 
I would have to look up who the latest officials are. There are a number of different a number of different departments and ministries um, that are overseeing various you know uh, technology initiatives. So you have strategies, you have departments, you have authorities. Um, they create the Saudi Arabia created a data and AI authority. Ooh. You have ministries as well. You don't create, I mean, Saudi Arabia doesn't have a ministry of artificial intelligence like their neighbor, the United Arab Emirates has, uh, but they do have a number of, of departments and ministries that essentially have similar portfolios. So, I mean, there are a number of different officials um, and uh, yeah, you'd be really testing my knowledge to give you a, yeah. a, a full rundown of a list of all of them, but I can get back to you on that. That'd be great because we've got to have like the leaders, like the CTO of the United States and like, you know, different technology leaders for different countries. I think it'd be cool to have like, we haven't gotten to go to a talk with another country for a while. So I think it'd be cool to do that with Saudi Arabia uh, or um, the UAE, right? I think that would be cool. Yeah, the UAE is... Um of course, it's uh, it's a smaller country. I mean, we're we're talking ten million people. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a slightly smaller economy um, than Saudi Arabia. A population's about ten million compared to Saudi Arabia's thirty five million or or a little bit more. So um, it's a smaller country, but they've been moving very quickly on the technology front, and they've been doing it for longer than Saudi Arabia has. So they do have a, a head start, so to speak, in terms of positioning themselves as a regional technology hub. They attract a lot of startups, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of tech uh, companies have their headquarters, regional headquarters uh, in uh, Dubai or, or, or Abu Dhabi. Many are in Dubai. And much of what Saudi Arabia is doing in the tech space is to try to leapfrog, so to speak, uh, a number of the um, technology oriented initiatives and developments that are taking place in Dubai and transcend the region, so to speak. And by doing so, transcend the uh, kind of the leader in that space at the moment, the UAE, and really market themselves to, um, you know, on a global level, to a global audience of investors and, uh, and businesses. They're not there yet. There's still a lot of work to be done, but they do have, as I said, they have a bigger population. They have, in many respects, more financial you know, uh, firepower than the uh, United Arab Emirates. And they have a very, very ambitious uh, young crown prince um, pushing forward this agenda. So the technology domain, whether you're looking at you know, various segments of uh, the technology sector, you're looking at digital economy, digitization uh, as well, um, transforming, you know, government services. All of these areas are, uh, to my mind, worth betting on. Now, I'm not a, a, a betting man, but, you know, were I a betting man, I would put my chips behind uh, this area of economic development in Saudi Arabia because it's really recession-proof. Government officials in Saudi Arabia and, quite honestly, um, many other countries in the region they see investments in technology as a worthwhile venture, whether you know we're in good economic times or bad economic times. And when the times are good and money's flowing into to government coffers, they re you know uh, reinvest that money through their sovereign wealth funds into tech ventures, both you know local, regional, and international, uh, as a way to essentially future-proof their economies. And when times are bad, you know, during those bad economic times, when we see austerity measures and across much of the economy, these governments are still investing in various uh, technological services, platforms, apps, 
because they see technology and a strong, robust digital economy as, in many respects, a way to reduce waste to um, and also to promote sustainable growth, uh, the type of growth that's going to be around for a long time uh, and is, in many respects, very different from the growth that has been attached to the hydrocarbon sector that's enabled, uh, you know, economic development in these countries for many decades. But it has a shelf life. It's not going to be around forever. We're not going to be, you know, filling up our cars uh, with gasoline until the end of time. Yeah, hopefully. I, I hope it ends up being some like fascinating new technology that we come up with that's, you know, maybe an improvement on nuclear and making that more accessible on a smaller level. But to have an industry that doesn't vastly mature is just not something that happens. Like technology matures the industries and then it just goes farther and farther. So yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to that. Obviously, you know, I've got kids and so I want the world to be cool for them. Last question. If let's say you made Biden upset and he kicked you out of the United States, can't, you can't live in the United States anymore. Where would you live? Like what other country would you live in? Well, my partner, she's from uh, she's from Holland. Grew up just outside of Amsterdam, and okay. uh, we now also we have, we have uh, young children at home, twins. They're uh, going on four months, so I'd probably uh, we'd probably relocate to to Europe. Yeah, not only because we have a family connection there, but um, I spent a good amount of my my academic career in uh, in Europe. So in England, when it was part of Europe. As a master's student and uh, as a doctoral student, had a great time living in England. In many respects, Europe, it's, it's between the Middle East and, and, and the U.S. where I grew up. So it's a nice um, compromise, so to speak. Dude, from- twins? Come on now. <laughs> That's tough. That's right. Yeah, third generation in a row. I'm a twin. My, my father's oh, a nice. twin. So, yeah, we had two for one. Joel, is there anything we didn't, uh, we didn't cover or anything you wanted me to elaborate on before we go? Uh, no, just if you have a blog, do you have a newsletter? Do you have? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would encourage many of the listeners to go on to the Arab Gold States Institute in Washington, and you can follow you know, a range of topics related to Saudi Arabia and other countries in the Gulf. If you're interested in Next Gen Gulf, which is the research series that I created and oversee, that as I mentioned earlier in, in, in our discussion, focuses on how technology impacts uh, the economies and the governments in this region, then you can find all of the latest publications and events for this initiative and also register to, to receive updates about that as well. Your listeners are also free to reach out to me. My contact information is, is easy to find. And I, I run a Gulf political economy list serve for a few hundred MENA-focused, Middle East and North Africa-focused professional contacts. So yeah, I'm, I'm very open to, to receiving unsolicited inbound requests for those interested in speaking and thinking and talking about the Middle East. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.